0: I just want to welcome you all to Halifax Christian Church. I had an amazing evening last night. Bruce Stewart, one of our elders, and myself, we were invited to a Persian gathering. It was about 35 people that had grown up in Iran in the Muslim faith and had moved here to the Halifax area. Only six of them are Christians. Four of them, who are members of our church and became Christians here, and then there was one other man who became a Christian in Turkey, another one who became a Christian in Oregon, actually, and then eventually moved here. And they were having a worship service in Farsi, and then the guy who was leading asked me to get up and pray. And I was thinking, okay, let this be like the apostles, let me speak in Farsi, but it was English. But it was amazing just to be able to participate in that evening and, and make some contacts in that community. And we really look forward to seeing a lot of them becoming Christians in the very near future. We're in a challenge right now, a food bank challenge, and you'll see boxes at the back and our home groups are trying to challenge one another to see who can bring the most amount of groceries between now and next Sunday. And then we're also challenging the rest of the church to get involved. Right now you guys are kind of behind the rest of the church. So, next Sunday you still have an opportunity to bring some groceries in. In every city, as well as in many towns in Canada, you can find a cenotaph, which is a memorial in honor of those who gave their lives in battle for our country. And Jesus knew just how short our memories are, and he decided just hours before his death to establish a memorial, so that we could remember And here we are almost 2,000 years later, still able to reserve to observe the Lord's Supper. And that is that monument that we have. John 6, verse 53 Jesus answered, I tell you for certain that you won't live unless you eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man. So it's very important for you as a Christian to understand the significance of the Lord's Supper. A proper participation in this spiritual feast will enable you to actually grow stronger and stronger in your Christian life. And we've been doing a study through the book of Luke this year, and right now we're studying the latter chapters leading up to the crucifixion and also the resurrection of Jesus. And in Luke chapter 22, which we're looking at today, we see Jesus actually participating in the Passover meal with his apostles. And then he introduces the Lord's Supper or communion as we know it by. And what we're going to do is look at that original Passover as it occurred in the book of Exodus, and then we're going to take a look at the Jewish Seder. So there's going to be a bit of a history lesson for you today. If you don't like history, I apologize. But we are going to look at the yearly observance of the Seder, or Passover, which those in the Jewish faith participate in. And we're going to see how this actually relates to our communion time. Now the original Passover is described in the book of Exodus in chapters 11 and 12. And it originated on the 14th day of Nisan, and that's actually the middle of March, maybe early April, and for 400 years the nation of Israel, had been slaves in Egypt. They had been captured there by Pharaoh, and Pharaoh stubbornly refused to release the slaves. Even though nine terrible plagues had actually been pronounced upon Egypt, he still wouldn't let those people go. So God said, okay, I'm going to have to act here. And he instructed the slaves, the Hebrew slaves, which now numbered probably two million he instructs them that there's going to be one more plague and it's going to be so much beyond all the others. But he said that I will protect my people, I will protect you through this. And he said that there would be loud wailing in Egypt beyond any that had ever been heard before or ever will be. But he promised that he would protect the Hebrew families. So I didn't, I don't have this on the screen, I just want you to listen to Exodus chapter 12. And this was the instruction they were given. Choose either a sheep or a goat, but it must be a one-year-old male that has nothing wrong with it, and it must be large enough for everyone to have some of the meat. Each family must take care of its animal until the evening of the fourteenth day of the month when the animals are to be killed. Some of the blood must be put on the two doorposts and above the door of each house where the animals are to be eaten. That night the animals are to be roasted and eaten together with bitter herbs and thin bread made without yeast. Now don't eat the meat raw or boiled. The entire animal, including its head, legs, and insides must be roasted. Eat what you want that night, and the next morning burn whatever is left. When you eat the meat, be dressed and ready to travel. Have your sandals on, carry your walking stick in your hand, and eat quickly. This is the Passover festival in honor of me, your Lord. That same night I will pass through Egypt and kill the firstborn son in every family and the firstborn male of all animals. I am the Lord, and I will punish the gods of Egypt. The blood on the houses will show me where you live, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Then you won't be bothered by the terrible disasters I will bring on Egypt. Remember this day. And celebrated each year as a festival in my honor. For seven days, you must eat bread made without yeast. So, that original Passover was eaten without yeast because they didn't have time to allow the bread to rise. They had to be prepared to leave on a moment's notice, so the meal had to be put together quickly. And like Charles Swindle calls that night the night nobody slept. And it must have been a creepy night. Because the Bible says that in the slave camp, in the Hebrew camp, not even a dog was barking. It was just total silence. And the Hebrew fathers, they killed that animal. They smeared the blood over the door frame. And then I'm sure they just walked away a little distance from their house, looked at it. And I'm not really sure the death angel is going to see that blood. So they would go and they would smear another coat. Maybe even a third or a fourth coat. They don't want that angel to be mistaken. And then in the house, all the mothers would be holding their oldest child in their arms to protect them. then Exodus 12, verse 29. At midnight, the Lord killed the firstborn son of every Egyptian family. From the son of the king to the son of every prisoner in jail, he also killed the firstborn male of every animal that belonged to the Egyptians. That night, the king, his officials, and everyone else in Egypt got up and started crying bitterly. In every Egyptian home, someone was dead. So it all happened exactly as God predicted, and because of the unrelenting heart of Pharaoh to not release the Hebrew slaves, and also because of the punishment that they had been accepting from the Egyptian people for that 400 years. So now the parents in Egypt were mourning the loss of their firstborn child, but not one of the Hebrew children died. God was true to His promise, and that death angel passed over their homes. So if you're familiar at all with the Jewish faith, the Passover is celebrated to commemorate the fact that the death angel passed over the homes of those Hebrew families that night. So in the middle of the night, a Pharaoh contacts Moses. He says, look, I want you to get these people out of here. Like, We've had enough. He was basically saying, uncle, I don't want any more of my people to die. Get your people out of here. So the Hebrew slaves quickly left and carried out of Egypt. Now, God gave specific instructions about how the Passover was to be observed. And this Passover was always the highlight on the Jewish festival calendar. And 1,500 years after that original experience, Jesus and his disciples actually come together to celebrate the Passover. And this is an extremely tense time. The religious leaders were so jealous of Jesus' popularity and so furious over the authority that he displayed and his rejection of their authority that they're trying to assassinate him. So they're making plans, but they don't want to do it publicly because they know that this will cause a riot amongst the people who are supporting him. So they're trying to find a treacherous way in which they can do it. And Judas Iscariot raises his hand and he basically said, I'll, I'll be the one to do this for you. So he's one of Jesus' twelve apostles, but he betrayed him. And he said that he would lead the religious leaders to Jesus. So now the wheels of injustice are rolling and there's no stopping it, there's no going back. So picture this: like Jerusalem is just overflowing with people. So We'll be looking here at Luke 22, verses 7 and 8. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make pre- preparations for us to eat the Passover. Of Every Jew within a 15-mile radius of Jerusalem would be in Jerusalem to celebrate that meal. And any others that are outside of that boundary, would do their best to go and be in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover as well. So there would be hundreds of thousands of people descending upon Jerusalem. And this isn't a big city in that day. And it it would be even worse than when Halifax hosted the World Men's Hockey Championships. And there were people from countries all over the world coming to support their team. 500 from Germany and a a 1,000 Latvians. And everywhere you went during that week, you'd run into a Latvian with the Latvian national jersey on. And we thought that was something. But it still would be even worse than that. It would be similar to going down to the waterfront on July 1st, trying to elbow your way out onto one of those wharves to watch the fireworks display. That's what it would have been like in Jerusalem. And Peter and John have been dispatched to make preparations and find a room so that... Jesus and his apostles could celebrate the Passover in private. So in verse 9 we pick up, but they ask, but where do you want us to prepare it? And Jesus had carefully arranged a secret place for them to go to. He had arranged all of this in advance, because he knew that people were watching them, that people were following them, and he didn't want it to be revealed where they were going to meet. So in verse 10... Jesus told them, as you go into the city, you will meet a man carrying a jar of water. Now, this doesn't sound that unusual, but actually it is, because the women in that culture always carried the water. So for a man to be carrying the water was a special sign. So the women did all the heavy lifting then, and a lot of times they do it today as well. So follow him into the house and say to the owner, Our teacher wants to know where he can eat the Passover meal with his disciples. The owner will take you upstairs and show you a large room ready for you to use. Prepare the meal there. So only these two disciples were permitted to know ahead of time where that Passover meal would be celebrated. Because if Judas knew ahead of time, he would alert the religious authorities and Jesus would actually be arrested before his hour had come. And there were no cell phones then, there were no text messages. So once they got Judas to the room, they were safe, because Judas couldn't then pull out a phone and go, here we are, we're on 123 Main Street, up on the second floor, you can find us there. He couldn't do that. Now Peter and John would have had a very long day in preparations. They would have to buy groceries, they would have to buy uh, an approved lamp. They would have to make sure that the lamb was actually killed in the temple. Then they would have to cook the lamb, cook all the rest of the food for the meal, and then set the table. And Jesus and the rest of the apostles arrived, and they were excited, because they didn't know what the rest of the evening was going to hold for them. Now we are actually going to go through what parts of that Seder or Passover meal, Jesus and his Apostles celebrate. And in the midst of that, we are going to celebrate communion ourselves. So the servers are going to come and pass out the communion as I talk to you. And if you're a guest with us today and you have a relationship with Jesus, then we ask you to celebrate with us. So just take a piece of bread and a cup of juice and hold on to them. And then I will alert us to when we will take those throughout what I'm saying. So this is research that I've done. I might have to read a lot of it in order to make sure I get it right. But this whole meal was called a Seder, which means that everything is to be done in order. And the leader would open with the Kadesh, which was a prayer of blessing. And then they would drink four different times from four different cups of wine. Now this wouldn't have been wine like we have today. They didn't use yeast, so it wouldn't have been fermented. Because if they drank four... Cups of wine over the course of two and a half to three hours, they might have been a little tipsy. So the first cup was called the cup of sanctification, and that was to represent the fact that they were uh, basically a sanctified people, which means that they were separate or apart or distinctive from the world. Then everyone would get up from the table. And they would go to a place in the room where there was a basin of water and a towel. And they would wash their hands to ceremonially say that they were clean before participating in the Passover meal. And that is probably where Jesus then washed his disciples' feet. Someone should have done that. Their feet were all dirty. But these guys were more concerned about who's going to be sitting at Jesus' right hand in heaven. They were concerned about power and administration than they were about being humble enough to actually wash someone's feet. So Jesus systematically went through each one of them and washed their feet. Then as they sat down, the leader took some of the greens, which might have been celery or parsley, and there would have been a prayer of thanks that God had provided a harvest. And then they would take those greens and dip them in salt water. And that was actually as a demonstration that their ancestors, those Hebrew people, 15 years prior to that, were people of tears because they were slaves in Egypt. And the salt water was also a reminder that Jesus Christ was a man who was very much acquainted with sorrow and grief. Then the leader would take the unleavened bread, which was called matzah, and he'd remove the middle of this bread, which comes in three pieces. And then he'd break the rest of it in two. And then he'd put the smaller piece back into the bag. But the bigger piece he would wrap in a cloth or in some type of napkin. And then he would tell the children that were present to cover their eyes because he was going to hide that larger piece. And that piece of matzah is called the Coma. And it was going to be eaten at the end of the meal. And then someone designated, usually one of the children, would ask, what does all of this mean? Like, Why do we do this each year? And the leader would then pass the decanter of wine around, and the second cup would be filled and left sitting in front of them. And then they might use the items on the Seder plate and say, these greens dipped in salt water remind us that we... Are a people of tears. The unleavened bread reminds us that our ancestors had to leave Egypt quickly. We eat the lamb as a reminder that a lamb was sacrificed and the blood was put above the doors of the homes of the Hebrew people. And the death angel passed over those homes. He would go through that in the Passover meal. Then they would restate the ten plagues in an unusual way they'd take the second cup, which was the cup of deliverance, still wouldn't drink it, but it was a reminder that they were a people who were delivered from the plagues that came upon the Egyptians as God was trying to force Pharaoh to release the Hebrew, the Israelite people. So what the leader would do is dip his finger in the wine once for each of the plagues, and he would drop it on his place. So he would go water, turn to blood, uh, frogs, Mats, flies, death of livestock, uh, boils, hail, locusts, uh, death of the firstborn, and then he would also, darkness would throw in there before that. Then another piece of the matzah was taken, and it was dipped into what was called maror, M-O-R-O-A-R, and this was a bitter herb that had horseradish in it. And when they actually ate that, it would bring tears to their eyes. But once again, it served as a reminder of their years of slavery You need who to... actually freely eats horseradish. I can't understand it. But it was probably at this point where Jesus said, the one who dips his hand with me in the dish is going to be training So just... As he and Judas Iscariot put their hands to dip into that morar at the same time, Jesus would have turned to Judas and said, Yes, it is you. And it was a bitter deed that Judas was about to do. He was about to turn over his Lord and Savior to the leaders of the Jewish faith and to the Romans. Say that quickly. They would dip their matzah into what was called the horoset. And I know why they did this. Because it was made up of apples and dates and honey ground together. So this was to be kind of an offset or to a sweet counter, actually, to the bitter herbs that they had just eaten. And then they'd finally drink the second cup, the cup of deliverance from Egypt. And then they'd take the rest of the horoset, and they would ground it up to remind them of the mortar that they had to mix in order to make bricks for the Egyptian pyramids. And some people also think that the horuset reminded them of the sweetness of God's grace in the fact that he would one day send the Messiah to save everyone. So finally they'd eat the lamb and more matzah and more greens. And during that part of the meal is probably where Jesus told Peter Oh, by the way, you're going to deny knowing me three times. And then Peter's no way, no way. But we realized how it did happen. Then the third cup, the cup of <coughs> redemption was poured. But they wouldn't drink it just yet. The leader would turn, usually to the youngest child, and say, OK, you can go find the Komen now. And that child would rush off, and it wouldn't be hidden in a very great spot. And he would find that Coleman wrapped up, inside that napkin, and then the child would just squeal when he found it. And the reason that he would squeal is because a ransom had to be paid by the leader in order to get the athikoman back again. So some type of gift would be given to the child. So of course the child was excited. I am going to get something special here. And then at this point, in Luke 22:19, Jesus took some bread in his hands and gave thanks for it. Would you bow with me? Father, we just thank you so much for uh, allowing us to be in relationship with you. We thank you for the fact that you did all the work in this. You were the one who decided that the time was right, and you sent your Son into this world to become one of us. It's so hard for us to understand how he was still totally God, but totally human at the same time. But we know, Father, that he lived a sinless life, that he died as a perfect sacrifice for each one of us. But, Father, we praise you for the fact that you never left him there in that tomb, but you brought him back to life, victorious over death. And now here we are today, almost 2,000 years, offering thanks for this bread and for this cup, which represent the bread and the blood of your Son. So, Father, we ask your blessing as we participate. So he took that bread, after praying, he would have broken it, and then handed it to his disciples and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Eat this as a way of remembering me. So let's eat it. Can you see the God ordained symbolism in this? That Jesus' body is like that unleavened bread. It was without sin. And even Judas Iscariot, after he did his deed, said, I have betrayed innocent blood. Pontius Pilate, the man who actually gave the death sentence to Jesus, said, I find no reason. There's no fault with this man. Why am I charging him? And then in Isaiah... It says, he was silent like a lamb being led to the butcher. And then his body was placed in a tomb. And three days later, Peter and John went looking for it. And they went into the tomb, and the body wasn't there, but there was an angel there. And the angel said, "Uh, uh, what are you guys doing here in the place of the dead, looking for the living? He's not here. He has risen from the dead. He's been raised to life And when they saw Jesus in person and realized that he really had been raised to life, they were so overjoyed they couldn't contain themselves because they now understood that Jesus had paid his life as a ransom for their sin. So their freedom had been purchased by Jesus Christ's death on the cross. And it was then that they would drink the third cup of redemption. And at that time, Jesus would have taken the cup and said, This is my blood. It is poured out for you, and with it, God makes this new agreement. And his death was a deliberate death. Just like the death of that lamb was deliberate, the father deliberately killed that lamb to save his oldest child, the Son of God allowed himself to be executed so that we could be saved, so that we could symbolically drink his blood and smear it all over the door frames of our hearts, and then one day, the spiritual death angel would just pass over us and would not be concerned with us in the least. In 1 Peter 1.18, Peter wrote, mm-hmm. You were rescued from the useless way of life that you learned from your ancestors, but you know that you were not rescued by such things as silver or gold that don't last forever. You were rescued by the precious blood of Christ, that spotless and innocent land, and that's the key, the precious blood of Christ, that spotless and innocent land. So Jesus and his disciples drank of that third cup to remember not only that Jesus' body was destroyed, but that his blood was shed. Let's drink the cup. Then the Bible says... That they sang a hymn, so there were hymns back then, and got up and went out to the Mount of Olives. And apparently Jesus didn't drink the fourth cup, which is called the cup of praise, because the Jews in their cedar celebration would pour out a fourth cup, and then the leader would tell the story of Elijah from the Old Testament. And he would say that Elijah is going to return someday, and he is going to basically pave the way, or prepare everybody for the coming of the Messiah. And today, Jews still have an empty chair at their Passover meal, so that if Elijah happens to come, he can come and sit at their table. And they even have the door ajar, just in case they missed Elijah, but the Messiah is still here, and he wants to come and enter in and join with them at that meal. And then, if a Jew isn't in Jerusalem when they drink that fourth cup, that cup of praise, they will actually say, next year in Jerusalem. That's the wish of every Jew, is to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. That annual Seder meal gives the Jews pride in their nation and in their heritage. And Jesus didn't drink that fourth cup, that cup of praise, because first of all, Elijah came in the person of John the Baptist. He was the one who prepared the way for Jesus. And Jesus didn't leave the door ajar because the Messiah had already come into that room. So Jesus said to his disciples in verse 18, I tell you that I will not drink any more wine until God's kingdom comes. And then they left. The Lord's Supper is the greatest memorial of all time. We're not just remembering someone who died for his country. We're remembering the Son of God who literally gave his life for everyone in the world. He shed his blood for all people of all time. And it's during the Lord's Supper that we understand the significance of all of this. Do you know why Jesus went to the cross? It wasn't because the religious leaders drummed up these false charges. It wasn't because... Pilate finally agreed to it. It wasn't the Romans or the Jews that actually screamed out for his death. It was you and it was me. It was your sins and my sins. And the Bible says in Isaiah 53, But the Lord gave him the punishment we deserved. Like We realize how horrendous our sins are when we find out and understand that they actually nailed the Son of God to the cross. So we repent and we drink of the communion cup, which is, in a sense, that fourth cup or that cup of praise. The Lord's Supper is permanent. He takes frail elements, bread, which will go bad on you in days, and this ordinance has lasted 2,000 years. And you don't have to go to Jerusalem in order to see some monument. Like It's portable. It can go anywhere. And back when Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong landed on the moon, they actually stopped and had communion. And this is what one of them said. I called back to Houston. Houston, this is Eagle. This is L.N. Pilot speaking. I would like to request a few moments of silence. I would like each person listening to give thanks in his own personal way. For me, this meant taking communion. I opened the little plastic package that contained the bread and wine. I poured the wine into the chalice, and at one-sixth gravity of the moon, the wine curled gracefully up the cup. The very first liquid poured on the moon and food eaten were communion elements. And just before I participated, I read. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever remains in me and I in them will bear much fruit, and you can do nothing without me. So the Lord's Supper is something that you participate in, and it's something that you come away from edified. That's why the Bible says in 1 Corinthians ten sixteen, when we drink from the cup that we ask God to bless, isn't that sharing in the blood of Christ? when we eat the bread that we break, isn't that sharing in the body of Christ? There's a well-known painting called the Vietnam Wall. And a young widow and her daughter are standing in front of this monument, and they're actually pointing to the name of the husband and father who died in combat. But when you look a little closer, you're expecting to see a reflection of the girl and her mother in this polished marble. But you actually see the father, the the husband, the soldier, actually reaching out his hand to touch theirs. Now when we participate in the Lord's Supper, when we reach out and take this unleavened bread, this smaller piece of it that you did, or drink the fruit of the vine, we actually in a sense, have Jesus reaching out to us in a mystical way and touching our lives. That's why if your heart is right and you understand that Jesus Christ gave His blood for your sins, then His blood will cleanse you of all that sin. The Lord's Supper offers us hope. And it's not just looking back on somebody who died and rose from the dead. It's looking back on someone who actually has another... Task to complete, and that is to come again on judgment day. So when we participate in communion, we realize that Jesus has completed this part of his mission and he is coming again. And he we, when we participate, proclaim that Jesus is alive. If you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you're not able to participate in this simple memorial, I encourage you to come to the front and greet me and make that decision as we stand together and sing your commitment song.